yeah, that was a dangling diagram. Just it was one of those weird falls, and we and there was a little, you know, these little micro trends. It's like a fish gets caught, and a bunch of people here, and it really takes over for a few weeks. That was right in the middle of a, a most recent micro trend of dangling. So, so many people were asking me about how to set it up and what it looks like. So I pencil sketched it just because I love doing that. And it, yeah, it's a funny little piece of artwork. It actually got photocopied and sent around the resort at Salmon Lake. I saw one blowing in the wind one afternoon. I picked up, I always pick up garbage. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Somebody photocopied this sketch. That's classic. Yeah. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, a look behind the scenes of the fly fishing world, featuring insight from guides and gear reps, conversation with resort managers, thoughts on entomology, discussions on fly patterns and destinations, and plenty of fish stories. Most importantly, it's an exploration of this lifelong journey we call fly fishing. Here is your host, Mark Hopley, with this episode of Fly Fishing 97. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Today, it's really our pleasure to welcome back our first return guest to the program, Brent Gill. Hey, Brent, thanks for coming on the program today. Hey, well, thanks for the invite again, Mark. It's my pleasure. I had a great time the first time. That was the first time I ever did an audio podcast. And uh, yeah, it was it was. It was fun, so it's great to be back again. Thanks. Awesome. So Brent's with The Weight Creative Company, the host producer of the Stalefish Podcast. Brent also looks after the Douglas Lake Ranch and its many fly fishing destinations, world-class stuff. Okay, Brent, now look, we got to start at the beginning, man, because I've been, I've been following your, uh, your video podcast, the Stalefish Podcast. Maybe we can start with that. That's new for you, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I love, I, I got a problem with trying to stay busy and be creative and just, you know, make stuff. So I've been doing, now this is our, you know, our 10th year with Wait for it Films and running cameras all over the place in the winter. Just unfortunately, geographically where we are, there's not a ton of fly fishing stuff to film. So we decided to, well, I decided to take the cameras into kind of a shorty um, pod video podcast approach and, Got a pretty good list of people coming up, and it's kind of neat. Um, we're able, you know, I'm able to contact people ahead of time and have them kind of set up a place they'd like to be comfortable, you know, because it's suddenly you're on video, right? And mm. that adds a whole other stress for some people to it. But, you know, they can bring uh, what we're doing kind of moving forward is bringing some of the topics on, like specific flies and gear and all sorts of different things. So, yeah, it, it keeps my um, wheel turning yeah in the creative world and yeah i try not to think about it all day what i want to do next but it happens anyways so <laughs> that's cool well yeah i mean i can i know firsthand how hard it is to get guests first off not only get guests on the program but line up your schedule so it works um and it's probably a smart move on your part getting getting these shows really going this time of year yeah the timing's right for sure mark you, you know you, you nailed that the pe- everyone's you know it's that post new year's pre warm interior season itch thing going on so it's 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 easier to get people on right now for sure but the the challenge i'm finding is is the combination of clean wi-fi on both sides Mm. all the equipment charged and running and everything queued up all at the same time so there's a bit of a checklist and a walk around and each one looks a little bit different and sounds a little bit different so there's lots of work still but i'm excited we got another 20 20 so people lined up and uh the new one that we're gonna do is 
kind of a surprise cast. It's going to be called the roll cast. And anyone that uh, said that they're interested, they're going to get a call at any time. It's we're just going to fire it up and <laughs> <laughs> they could be in subway or they could be on the couch, but they're going to get the call and they're going to be on video. And the guys that said they will, and the gals that said they'll do it, they're, they're they, they better be ready. <laughs> I'm thinking you better be careful where you take your phone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause there's been a dozen or so. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to I'm going to pick my timing. I mean, obviously we're not going to make it silly, but it should be fun. You know, those those people better be ready. <laughs> you know what I love about that though is it it it's very authentic, right? It takes out any rehearsed kind of it's like, "Hey, what are you doing?" It's just like a, a casual conversation. I I guess too from from your point of view, uh working with the gang at the Douglas Lake Ranch and also uh being heavily involved in the fly fishing industry for so many years, getting guests probably isn't as hard. That's yeah. That's um, I don't I don't know where to what to say there. That happened off the bat for sure. When I I was with West Coast Resorts, uh, a title uh, company for years, and when I jumped um, ship and joined in on the Douglas Lake Ranch team, the first few years there was a you know I had a, you know some friends and foe that came across, but now you know it's um, I guess maybe we've established our relationship with the company and the product. So now I find I'm just answering a ton more questions. And, you know, ideally I think when people are, are choosing a destination, they, I think they already know before they contact the, the company that they're going to, that they want to go there. So I might be an asset in concerns to that, but I, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah. Just on a personal note, did you get out fishing a lot this year, Brent? I did more this year than I have in the last 15 years. And I made, I made that, that was a new year's resolution last year mm -hmm. because you, I get caught up in the management part. I have uh, pushing 40 staff in the season and all these different kind of operations. And I, I was starting to lose that part and believe it or not. And I think, you know, this, um, the closer you are to your passion geographically or in distance, the less, the least you do it. And it's really weird. I talked to a friend of mine, you know, you, if you bought a cabin on a lake, you would be doing more repair maintenance and cutting wood than fishing. So I, you know, I had, I'm in a close proximity of all these great fisheries, but I just wasn't fishing as much as before. So I made sure last year I did. That's a great quote. Because it, what you said is so true, and that's the first time I've actually ever heard it put that way. But it, I know sometimes, because I'm the same, I immerse myself into whatever I'm doing, whether it was radio back in the day or, or fly fishing or, or tying flies. But sometimes you get so into it, you just, it's almost like you're not part of it anymore. Does that, does yeah, that there's sense? a disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. And I've, I've had it, I've always, it's been trickier for me to fish on the, the lakes that are within the, the property here. Just because the the connection is still that work feeling, um, you know, I'll, I might run into an outhouse that needs toilet paper, or the boat launch is crooked, <laughs> or I see something. It's just I don't have that connection with fish as much as I do off property. So I fished eighty uh, percent off of Douglas Lake last year, and you know that's that's ten lakes here. But I just I, I needed to get touched back with that uh, that that early feeling of, you know, the passion and, and, and I had to jump back and start exploring new bodies of water and stuff like that. 
just kind of keeping up with your your wait for it films i get a sense that kind of your relax kind of slash creative time is when you get out on your own you've got all your camera equipment and you can just take a day yeah um highly disputable mark when you got that many cameras and a drone in the boat things can get really bad <laughs> But that's, Terribly see, that's, bad. <laughs> I'm see, I'm sensing some character uh, traits here. See again, you're immersing yourself into the drones <laughs> and into the cameras, and it's like all of a sudden you can't see the fish for the water. Yeah, it's kind of a problem. Um, what I did a ten day trip this fall uh, to a handful of famous uh, caribou stillwaters, and I had to separate. I, I think about day five, and I do this. I do this trip alone with my dog, so it's you know it's immersing. But I had to. I had to leave the gear alone for a few days because I, you know, you get up in the morning and you're like, oh, I got to get that shot. Or, you know, you're cutting wood. And, oh, I should run a time lapse and it can ruin the trip. So I'm mm. starting to learn when to put the equipment away and, and, and that. So, yeah, this year was a big learning year for me about touching, you know, get going back and, and re, re kind of editing how I, why and how I do this. And why I do this, I guess. Well, you make a lot of people happy with your work. I can tell you that, and and we hope you keep it up. I, <laughs> Thanks. I, I got a. It's a it's it's a game, man. It's a game. I got a question for you. Like so, um, this year, uh, and I heard you allude to this on your podcast, and I I couldn't agree more. But you kind of mentioned that this year you saw some different things on the water. There were some things that worked, some things that didn't work. Maybe you can comment on kind of where your what was your takeaway from this from this fishing season yeah yeah good one um i saw a few things um with with uh you know accomplished anglers that were that the thing the techniques that i saw weren't in my arsenal so that was kind of like walking into a wall the the whole um the hanging blob and booby movement i've never been completely immersed in but what i did really latch back onto which I fished a, about a decade ago is I fished scuds heavy this year through spring, uh, summer and fall. And I really got connected to um, the intermediate camo lines um, by SA. I mean, all the manufacturers have them and um, a new, it's, a, it's an intermediate running line with a type three head and just superb kind of shoal angle scud fishing hmm. either in the shallows out to the depth or parallel casting along you know cruising lanes right and i got really 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 dialed again this this season on on fishing scuds the whole year loved it what kind of scud pattern sprint are you are you fishing um good one uh the traditional baggy shrimp um you know that had the this this clear strip i still do the old school thing people might laugh but i still cut strips out of ziplocs mm-hmm. uh, i run a, a squirrel an olive squirrel and yellow antron dubbing mix uh yellow mallard at the tail yellow mallard at the thorax and a gold bead uh the traditional baggy scud but with a bead head and a little more yellow in it 12s and 14s um five pound fluorocarbon tippets uh no, uh loop knot um but not a loop knot in the real clear water right and that just seemed to be super good i mean just it caught fish everywhere i felt super confident in it and you know what happens when you get on a fly bandwagon it's like the things on the thing barely 
gets ignored it just seems to be tied back on that's so, so true if if you believe in yeah. it if you believe in it yeah. it's gonna work yeah you, you fish it better for sure yeah i heard you talking to uh, jordan ulrich on your podcast and you said something that really stuck with me and i i hadn't verbalized it but i i i lived it the white bead chronomid last year where what the heck happened to that yeah and i I wasn't there yet. And Jordan explained um, how he got refascinated and reattached back to the snow cone patterns. And he said there was rarely a day they didn't use them again. And he felt almost handicapped in certain, uh, you know, uh, different waters, more tea or brackish waters without it. Right. And it really, yeah, that kind of put me in a pause for a second because I did, I wrote off the snow cone for a long time because, you know, black tungsten or gunmetal gold just, looked better for me right in my hands or in my eye and that's what i had i stopped tying those so i took that tip from jordan for sure well for you, next year you hit it you guys you hit know. it on the head though it's all about that watercolor because i like i i'm yeah. the same in that i did kind of give up on the uh the old ice cream cone the snow cone uh crony because the, the for us the black bead was just like heads and tails the last couple of years slaying them but but when like you say when you get into that tea stained water maybe some lily pads and some some more colored water that that white bead really pops yeah yeah and, and you know that was a proven proven pattern that was the breaking pattern when people got away from the pheasant tail peacock thorax that's when the first mm -hmm. real bead head came out. Those were the breaking patterns that fish haven't changed. You know, those were deadly mm -hmm. then, but we've changed. So we got to kind of revert back and remember those things. And it's, a, you know, that, that was a good, good conversation about that. I just, I forgot about them. And it made I sense. can tell you that I, I didn't, I wasn't fortunate enough to hang a blob on an indicator. Sounds like that was maybe <laughs> a go-to for you guys, but I haven't done you know it yet, man. I haven't done it yet. <laughs> Okay, you're taking the high road. That's good. Hey, I was, you know what worked for us though was um, uh, a booby on a floating line. Wow. In the shallows. Wow. I'm okay now. I'm, I probably should keep my mouth shut, but I'm going to open it up. I'm good at that. We were on a lake that had nothing but black waters, a very famous lake. And I'm telling you, you just put that booby. All different colors didn't seem to matter the color to be quite honest on a floating line with a fairly long leader yeah. and just off the drop and holy man and i i don't know what they're taking it for. i don't really care what they're taking it for but man did it work so that's that's like polywogging on the top like a top water yeah like i don't know if it's supposed to, maybe it looks like a dragon coming up to hatch i don't i don't know but they, they were honestly and and i'll tell you what happened my indicator was getting hammered yeah, right, like, what right. the heck? And I'm talking like double digit fish. So I'm like, okay, so what am I going to do here? So I put on a, on a big, just, I took the indicator off and just put a, uh, a booby on and uh game changer. Oh, that's an explosive take too. Oh yeah. It's addictive oh, yeah, for sure. That's a good anyway, one. Um, you know, we always struggle when the fish roll on the indicator, but there's a, there's a good backup plan. Sorry. You're uh, it's out there now. <laughs> yeah. I can edit. I can edit yeah, that. That's right. <laughs> this isn't yeah, video. Yeah, he can edit. I forgot he can edit. <laughs> yeah. right. But uh, so yeah, no, it was it was a pretty interesting season. Did just out of curiosity, you know how we we tend to see the chronomid hatches at certain times of the year. Did did the hatches kind of line up for you in your mind this year, Brent? Um, I think so. Um, of course, all of the you know all of the literature and the traditional calendars and time frames went out the roof 
the last mm-hmm. four years, the last four springs, especially the the last two. And, um, you know, I'm going to hit a bit of a touchy subject here, but, you know, with, with the recent um, deforestation more in the last decade, uh, you know, closer to some of the watersheds and certain bodies of water, the freshet, the spring runoff is different now. It's charged, it's dark, and it's fast. And I think the hatches have been, I felt like the waters that I'd fished, the, the cycle was big, but it wasn't as long, if that mm. makes sense. And I don't know if the chemistry is changing, and it might have just been where I was fishing. I could be totally wrong. Everything seemed, yeah. uh, in concerns to chronomids, explosive, but not as long, where typically, you know, the peak can be three weeks at, say, 3,500 feet. It felt shorter, the peak. Yeah, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, but people yeah. were still, you know, anglers were still doing well on them in that whole window. But the big emergencies where they're all over your rod and they're, you know, mm-hmm. hiding in the shade like clouds just seemed shorter. And I don't know if that's a trend because now, like, we we don't have, I don't know about where you are, but we don't have snow. We've got a few inches. Moisture content could be totally different this spring. Like, it's yeah. it's different now. So there's no there's no real patterns. Well, when was the last time you remember being outside in eight degrees in January? Yeah, really weird and no snow. That's yeah. the tricky one. We usually have mm. right now, usually at thirty five hundred, which is always a, you know, kind of a, a a measure I use for your average kind of better lakes seem to be around that thirty five hundred uh, right. feet in elevation. Normally in this area, the Thompson Nicola will have about a 30 inch base right now it's three inch base at that at that elevation so it's there's definitely less snow the ice factor the ice was a bit late and a little bit thinner so we could be we could be facing an early spring here yeah and i'm trying to remember what year it was but uh, i can remember being out on shannon lake in february yeah 2012 uh late february was ice off at 2800 feet yeah wow crazy crazy yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk specifically Douglas Lake Ranch for a minute, if you don't mind. So, how how was the fishing this year, um, specifically at the ranch? Did you have a good season? Um, no. <laughs> I probably people don't want to hear that if they're customers, but we did have some challenges this year. We had um, at thirty four hundred feet, we had one of the the biggest famous fisheries, uh, Mini Lake, uh, went through a total winter kill um, over the winter, mm. and that was. Um, most specifically, we had a 46-inch ice base, which is incredibly thick, and very opaque, non-transparent ice. So it had series of snowfall, refreeze, minus 30s, snowfall, refreeze, where the ice was very, very thick and opaque, and a heavy snow pack on top, which, of course, eliminates photosynthesis in February and March, the crucial months when the oxygen's depleting. You know, you need some of that you need a bright uh, subsurface and the plants just won't grow that in combination of a lower water with the drought of the summer. So the lake froze a little lower than normal. You put those combinations together and yeah, so we had a winter kill at mini, um, but we did restock it in the fall. Uh, Stony was uh, an exceptional, um, not, not the, the, uh, quantity but the quality was there we we're seeing quite a few bigger fish um, salmon lake was a slower start it got hit with a incredibly high massive freshet runoff that 
uh, tainted the lake color for almost uh, a month. We had trouble deciphering the difference between what was actually turnover and what was when it was finished and runoff. And then uh, mysteriously in August, the fishery just stopped. Um, there was, you know, really, really small amounts of fish caught throughout the summer and it and minimal in the fall. So um, fisheries jumped on board and did a restocking. But we had black waters introduced into Salmon Lake. Um, the the um, Go Fish BC, the society stocks Salmon Lake. Um, they switched the broods to black waters uh, last year. And hmm. in some bodies of water, this is an interesting fact, and it's not there's not a lot of it out there in print. Um, there's been documentation when you have a high freshet, uh, you know, a heavy runoff year, and you have a lake that has significant in and out flows. Sometimes black waters leave, and it's in the, it's in the name. You know, they're a, a, a river uh, originated fish. So we had some escapement there. We had uh, some mild summer kill, and it was a bit of a tough season. Uh, the good news is with all of that is rebound years, which is coming up, some generally are the best. So I'm looking forward to a rebound year at, at a few of the different lakes. Um, overall, I'd say it was, you know, not the best fishing in the last five years in most of the, the lakes, just with such a crazy spring and such a radiant hot summer. So hopefully we're, we're going to see some different environmental conditions this, this year. I, I really appreciate your candor because um, and it's a very honest answer because I agree with you last year, uh, even personally, fishing was decent, but it wasn't, it, it was not definitely not amazing like it has been uh, maybe the year before the, and the year before that. So like you say, maybe, maybe this will be a rebound year. Yeah. Yeah. It, it feels that way right now. Um, um, temperate wise, you know, with the conditions that we're looking at um, around us and how the lakes look, the good thing is, is the, uh, the majority of the lakes, um, due to some water management froze at a higher level, which is what you always want. You know, you want extra shot of water and some rain in the fall. You just, you just want that, that level up before it ices and closes up for six months. So, and we did have that all the way around. So, so that's good news for sure. It's just the unpredictability, you know, environmentally. And, and you saw it and, and everyone saw it with, um, on the flip side, some of the August temperatures, when the forest fires that hit through BC came down, you know, above the smoke, it was probably 38, but below it, it was 30 and 29 and little, we had little subclimates forming. So things are weird, man. You know, you just gotta, you know, you just gotta keep, keep positive and, and, and watch things and be a rounded angler and, you know, move around sometimes and fish different regions and do all sorts of stuff. So. Yeah, no, I, I totally, yeah. totally agree. So when you, um, Brent, when you hit a, a lake like Salmon, and and like you say, there's been a bit of a change there. So you've had some, I, I assume, panaces in there before. Now you got some black waters. Does that change how you approach the lake in your mind? Good question, because we didn't know. Um, the only, when I had, I was in conversations with the fisheries about, you know, there's a there's a population shortage at Salmon, and and they actually went back to the file societies, freshwater fishery society files, and found out just by looking, go oh, weird black butters were put in last year. Um, I don't approach them differently, but I know a lot of people that are very interested in, in species chasing like Penasks only, or they love black or Gerard guys mm -hmm. do have a different approach. 
But what I do know from them, from kind of watching and studying them this year, is they can suspend completely different than pinasks. And sometimes they'll what they call hunker down and, and hold deeper, even in cold surface conditions. So, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of experience specifically of fishing like a blackwater different than a pinasque. But there are some people around that, that do have some opinions on that, for sure. Do you know what I really... And this is just, you know, a, a novice uh, as far as fisheries goes talking. But what I saw was was basically those black waters. I mean, they more have that predator mentality. So if you're hanging just off a drop, all of a sudden they just show up and boom, you got to take. Whereas those those panas a lot of times are cruising more on on the shoals, but they'll they'll surprise the heck out of you, right? Yeah, and that how awesome is that? There there's a strain called uh, Zenzicate that was it's a uh, north. Uh, I could be wrong here. It's uh, Northwest Caribou, or I believe South Chicotan. And they used that strain for years. Um, these fish would predate on uh, coarse fish, but their characteristics were that they would school up uh, in the middle of the lake, sometimes subsurface. So the angler catch rates weren't as successful, but the fish were great to have in lakes. And they've kind of fallen off the uh, the list, so to speak. They're not, they're not raising them as much as they do, but a rainbow trout in a you know a region three still water but acting totally different so it's yeah. kind of it's kind of cool that we do have this and an interesting thing is these the triploids you know it's a huge it's like a household name now for a, a bc Stillwater angler well, it's got to be a triploid the the truth in the matter with triploids which we've learned being able to manage triploids hands-on is they don't all triploid so they need it's just like jurassic park you know nature has its way and some of these fish will still go and spawn either the process didn't work or nature had its way and recorrected the uh the the operation that happened to it so um, you will have pinasks spawning with black waters where the lake's program was to have triploid pinasks and 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 diploid um, black waters, but they they can end up spawning together and creating a hybrid. It's hap- it happens everywhere. It's interesting. I had uh, Adrian Clark on from uh, Freshwater Fishery Society, and he was explaining that the that just because they're triploid, they don't. It's not that triploid fish get bigger, but because he made it sound like because they don't spawn, they tend to live longer, so they get bigger because they're in the lake. Most of the trout are getting pulled out or or dying two, three years, maybe four, but those triploids tend to live longer and just grow big. Yeah, yeah, and I think the benefit of them too is that they're not preoccupied in the spring. So you know, the, some of the biggest explosive hatches, you don't have these fish trying to uh, channel up and get out of the lake into little tributaries. Or, or meandering around in their their spawn mm. mode in the shallows, they're still acting like a you know a hungry aggressive fish during that super important spring um, emergences. So they're they're there for the buffet, and and that's I guess you know that could be one of the main reasons as well that they they go in everywhere. Well, it sounds like there's going to be lots of buffets to be had at Douglas Lake Ranch uh, this year coming up. So uh, we look. For- yeah, it feels like it for sure. Yeah, we look forward to that. Hey, you know what I want to get into, Brent, is a little bit about let's let's chat about Stillwaters and the Facebook page, and because uh, uh, that's that's a going concern for you. I do stay uh, try to stay abreast of what's going on with your site. Maybe you can uh, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that. 
Sure. You know, we just, uh, I think we just finished, uh, it's been our first calendar year, year with uh, Stillwaters and I, I am, um, I'm the solo admin on it, uh, created it. And we, we were right around now, I think we're almost at 3000 members, but the group is great. Everything is, has all the foundation has been said about kind of the culture. There's, we're, think we're in pause mode right now with generally, you know, 80% of the group is from BC and Western Washington. So everyone's kind of in pause mode with the lakes, but the activity on the page is insane. Mm. Fly, it's like a fly, fly tying fest right now with chronomids and things. So I'm really happy the way it's going. It's a lot of uh, notification work on the phone, but it's sure a neat baby that's grown well and it's not too big where, you know, you're getting just all sorts of kind of weirdness. The, the culture is protecting itself. Everyone on there is has that same mindset of what they want it to be. And it's, it's yeah, can't be happier. It's, it's a great little uh, media tool for sure, 100%. If you haven't checked it out, uh, we're talking about the Stillwaters Facebook page that uh, Brent runs. And one thing that I find really, really good, you just, you just hit on it actually, um, fly tying in the winter months. So um, there's some pretty, what amazes me is some of these patterns, some of these guys are coming up with, there's some amazing tires that uh, just kind of pop up from out of nowhere. You're like, wow, I wish I could do that. Oh man, the chronomet game that's going on right now as we speak, if you have, if you're not a member of that page right now is the time to jump on because the chronomet fest that's going on on there right now and the patterns, like the cool thing is, is the, the, these new tying concepts are fusing at the same time with photography skills so the phones and the equipment have gotten better and the posting so not only are you seeing a top-notch pattern that somebody's spent a lot of time on they've also spent the time to take the right picture of it and it the fuse the fusion of the two you know creates beautiful content so it's neat to see because it's happening like right now i think i saw like five today that I was like, oh man, I got to set my equipment up again, move some of this camera gear out of the way. Well, part of me is thinking I got to reach out to some of these guys and start chatting time. It's a perfect venue for that. Yeah, uh, completely. Uh, Trevor, uh, I won't pronounce his last name. I think it's Tezera. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that name. Yeah. Yeah, incredible patterns out there. Uh, Wes Penny, um, of course, John Kent. Um, there's some beautiful patterns emerging right now. And these guys are tying them on really small hooks too. Um, you know, the picture doesn't justify how small those patterns are in person. It's, it's cool. You still tying a few uh, bloody blacks? You bet all the time. It, that's an old pattern too. It's so easy to tie, but again, it, it works. Uh, tie the blood and black all the time. Uh, been tying them smaller lately. Last time I talked to you, I told you about the big pizza theory. Right. Well, this year, uh, I, you know, I would be, I would be stale if I didn't. So I started tying some smaller 14s and 16s, smaller, um, smaller bodies on smaller hooks too, just to have more of an arsenal. I got a bit ignorant there for a while. <laughs> I got to, I got to tell you something I did here, but you can't tell anybody. Okay. So yes. uh, when you're fishing your chronomid, right. And maybe other yes. guys are doing this. I don't know, but it works for me. So you got your strike indicator. And then when you go down to your swivel, uh, before you put your swivel on, you put like a uh, seven, uh, just a really small tungsten bead, like like you tie on, yes. on a chronomet and it just slides up and down on your line. Yeah. So that is ahead of the... Dirty. Holy man, does that work? Yeah, dirty, dirty trick. It's like uh, float fishing the Vetter River. 
it's a wonderful tool and a lot of people don't know about it until now. Okay. I'm not, should I edit that? I might, <laughs> yeah. I, I might have to edit that. It's, it's, yeah, I, it, it is. And it, you can, you know, what's when it, when you cast it, it immediately shoots and knocks and hits at that swivel and it's locked in. So I find they lock in on, on a, like a 10, 10 wrap clinch knot. They'll even lock in there sometimes. Well, it's funny because I, I don't know about you, but I'm always trying to find a way to fish vertically with chironomids. Like there's all, I always yeah. think there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be a better way. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you dangle? Are you a, a hanger? You mean, you, you mean just a, with... you mean like an HD line straight down? Yeah, like the whole um, dangling concept. Uh, my buddy, have you, have you ventured that? My buddy does that, and I, I try. I, I kind of lose patience with that. He usually gets the rod ripped right out of his hands because those takes are pretty nasty. But uh, yeah, I, I haven't. I'll be honest with you. I don't do that a lot personally, but I know it works in certain situations. What about you? Yeah, it does. Late, late season. Um, you know, when they, uh, I'm not a, I, I'm not a huge advocate for it. I do it when I'm eating lunch. Hmm. Um, and I'll usually. From I've watched Mr. Chan catch two incredibly large fish, double the size that were normal to the lake last year, um, mid-afternoon, June, fishing 28 feet that way. Right. And, you know, it was slow, but the two fish that he hooked were twice the size of the average in there. And it was incredible to watch because that rod just goes barreling into the water and that fish comes straight up and it's got all that sinking line in front of you in the air a few feet away and quite a challenge but i it's definitely not a go-to um go-to tactic but i i I do it when i'm eating if i'm gonna eat lunch or if i'm changing lenses or doing something i'll drop them down i gotta tell you a funny story you probably heard this from some other uh people on your Stillwaters Facebook page, but I think I laughed for straight 10 minutes when I saw, when I saw you put that diagram up about the sinking line on the bottom of the lake. (laughs) Okay. Did you try that? Oh yeah. That's, that's the, you mean the, the dangling diagram? Yeah. Okay. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. That was a dangling diagram. Just, it was one of those weird falls and we, and there was a little, you know, all these little micro trends. It's like a fish gets caught and a bunch of people here and it really takes over for a few weeks. That was right in the middle of a, a most recent micro trend of dangling. So, so many people were asking me about how to set it up and what it looks like. So I pencil sketched it just cause I love doing that. And it, yeah, it's a funny little piece of artwork. It actually got photocopied and sent around the resort at Salmon Lake. I saw one blowing in the wind one afternoon. I picked up, I always pick up garbage. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Somebody photocopied this sketch. That's classic. Yeah. So, yeah, so for those that don't know what we're talking about, can you explain that drawing? Sure. Sure. And it, it is tricky. So what it is, is it's, it's a way to obviously get uh, a chronomid pattern a foot off the bottom in deeper water and stay a foot off the bottom and the transaction's quicker so ideally what you're doing is you're setting up a dropper weight um you can google dropper weights for chronomids there's a million ways to do it some guys will clip a forcep right to their chronomid or uh, hang it off the bouncing betty which is those round weights there's there's a million ways to do it with clamps and stuff but you need weight to affix to your chronomid and remove it so you, with your type six fast sync, you take your leader down. This is what I do. There's, I'm sure there's a bunch of other ways to do it. I just take it down to tip it. So I'll run 36 inches to 48 inches. So three to four feet of just tip it on the sinking line. 
and then a loop knot to a chronometer. And I usually pick a larger, like I'll pick a, almost a bomber, a 10 or a 12. And then, so you clip the weight over, you hold the rod over the side of the boat with your sinking line, loosen your drag and just start slowly letting line out until you feel the slack poof where it's hit bottom. Mm. At that point, this is where it gets crucial. You got to tighten your reel. So as soon as that line hits the bottom, you tighten the drag on your reel to an extra tighter setting than normal. And you reel three times, one, two, three, sometimes four, depends if it's muddy or hard. So if you think about it, now you're sitting, if you pause for a sec, with your line and your rods um, parallel to the water, your sinking line straight down to the bottom, and that fly sitting about a foot off the bottom. You're measured and you're sitting there right now. So the key is, is not touching your reel because your reel is your distance gauge. So then you move your hand up and strip back in that weight that's and that chronomid that's down there. till so it comes to the surface, grab the chronomid, remove the weight. Don't touch your reel, flip that line back over the side. What's it going to do? It's going to sink back down vertically exactly to where you had marked it by tightening your reel. And there you are. Um, hmm. That's set up and it's down there and it's locked. Yeah. Um, you need it in a rod holder. You need the, the reel underneath your leg. You need it pinned because when they do hit that, if you think about it, it's straight down. And if the fish moves four or five feet after he grabs it, which they normally do quickly, that rod's going in. So, Well, they've got no reservations in that deep of water, right? Yeah. yeah. It's definitely not pure. Uh, it's in, by no means is it traditional uh, casting and stripping and retrieving. It's, you know, it's power mooching like you do out in the ocean straight down. But the calculation of it is vicious and where it works for the guys that really key in on it is when they're marking fish in deeper water and it's in the spring because mm -hmm. you, you know that the time to get a, an indicator rig that deep and sit consistently that deep is tricky if there's a bit of wind or anything so yeah it's pretty vicious uh some of the american customers that come up and fish some of the waters in the spring will actually run a small split shot on their leader so they are a hundred percent confident they're vertical yeah i mean let's face it that's the trick is getting right vertical and i'm always thinking there's got to be better ways to do it and then when it comes back to the floating line i'm thinking there's got to be better strike indicators <laughs> there's got to be a system i find those pins don't always pop and you know there's always there's got to be there is it's coming you got it it's probably a few years from now but it's coming and someone's thinking about it right now somewhere for sure you can airbrush them yeah oh yeah yeah so i <laughs> see i want to talk about that a little bit because i did see some of the moby nets that you were uh you were airbrushing maybe tell us a little bit about uh how that all started sure so um luckily enough um a few years ago i i'm good friends with don chatwin the the mastermind behind the handcrafted Moby net and Maple Ridge. Um, he had uh, talked to him about a sponsorship for wait for it films. So any of the, you know, the still water stuff we'd be doing, even the moving water stuff, we'd, we'd use um, Moby nets and he, you know, he sent me a couple and I was just thrilled. But when we were talking and I'd been doing quite a bit of artwork, he's like here. And he handed me a blank, uh, unsent, you know, unfinished, just sanded Moby nets could play with this. And that's where it started. I took it home and airbrushed some different base colors on it and then started putting bugs on it and then experimented with some clear coats. And then it took off. So I've done 
six now. Um, all, they're all different. They're all one of one. Um, each one is about 40 hours of artwork from, from prep to art to finishing and the cure, curing. Um, we use just, or I use just water-based materials, so environmentally friendly materials on them. And they end up becoming kind of a crazy, weird, cool thing. Kind of neat. Cool. Um, they, they sell quick. I don't think it's taken longer than 25 minutes with a regular sell on on social media to sell them. So that's mm-hmm. a good thing. You know, if we were doing a bunch or kind of stamping them out, I think that demand would go away. But yeah, it, it's it's a cool looking thing to have in a photo now too with, a, you know, a net that kind of stands out and identifies the angler with different different uh, custom tools, so to say. Yeah, no, you know what? They're just beautiful too. I was blown away how, how cool they looked. Yeah, it's tricky though, Mark. I'll tell you, like I've, I've been doing artwork my whole life and it's easier. It's now it's very easy to paint on a canvas where you can look at a square object and say, okay, I'm going to put a picture on there. But when you're talking about a long, narrow piece of wood, that it's tricky to to project art onto it and have it look right at all angles and stuff like that it, it's it's stressful i've stopped i have uh, one more but i put that stuff away i said to myself i'm not going to be doing this for a few more months then i'll get excited again and, and, and put out another one well it begs the question why you just don't have a strained plate plain white chronomid and then just airbrush a chronomid on there <laughs> hey <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what's funny? Uh, funny you say that. I was doing. A, I made myself a custom fly box. So what I did was I laid down a bunch of my old. I don't use anymore. Some of the rusted hook patterns. I laid them on it and misted airbrush over it. So it, they would be like little stencils, and then you push them off, and their silhouette would be painted on the box. But after I looked at the flies, after I painted them, I'm like, uh oh, look at these things, because I did it like red and black. Right. So yeah, paint the flies could be airbrushed too that's Just cool don't want to yeah. dig into that world yet it's coming though that's a whole can of worms right there <laughs> yeah yeah literally like i need another can of worms right now well tell i want to get back to your stale fish podcast because well actually sure. while we're on the topic of art something i've been curious about is that 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 painting that that's behind you there i assume you did it it looks like something out of the flintstones am i t- t- yeah what is that that's that is uh, it's Hanna Barbera. So that's that's Fred Flint, Fred Wilma's house, and it's a screenshot that I captured on an old like I was looking for the house. I wanted to paint the house, but I wanted to make it kind of I wanted to add a twist to it. So I got a screenshot off of YouTube, and when I saw the screenshot, I kind of shrieked because I forgot how weird those colors were in the late seventies when they were creating that cartoon it was that's that's old stuff Mm. so i ended up painting it it's uh three by three and a half feet i airbrushed it and it took me weeks to mix the colors right but then i put a 1448 john boat in the driveway with a 99 merc on it just to just to bring it to bring it to the now so the painting's called uh simple man because it's got you know you got this old rock built prehistoric house but a nice brand new fly fishing skiff parked in the driveway that's awesome so what do you do with these? Do you just hang them on your walls? You sell them? What do you do? Uh, some I do. Some I, you know, this one, this was like, it was, a, I did this a long time ago. So I just, I always like looking at it because it, uh, you know, I, I, I saw that cartoon when I was younger mm-hmm. and the colors are dead on. 
So it was tricky getting, it's like, remember the old Technicolor, how the creams and those colors were always weird. I got it. I nailed it, but it took a ton of color paints and, and edits and mixtures to get it right. So I just like having it near me. It's kind of weird, but it'll be a backdrop for, for definitely for the season. It's fun. It definitely catches your eye on your Steelfish podcast. Yeah, it's kind of weird, right? And people are like, "What the heck is no. that?" I, I kind of like. No, I like it. it. Like for me, that's it's it's very personal, right? So it means something to you. So when you're um, doing your podcast, your video podcast, um, you're doing these through FaceTime, or how are you doing them? Yeah, so FaceTime for iPhone users, and then Facebook video for non-iPhone users, and um, it worked both. It was the same product both times we're i was lucky like when jordan ulrich and myself went on live i was worried so was he because the first few times we went it kept freezing because he was in belize you know on some weird crazy wi-fi down on the beach but when he flipped it vertically i said just try this because the resolution changes so he flipped it so it turned into the vertical um vertical aspect and that that was enough to keep the podcast going for i think 15 minutes before it froze right out but yeah, the time's limited on a video podcast for sure. That's the disadvantage. And that's kind of where, when you don't have people sitting in studio, you know, doing it, doing it remote's kind of the fun thing too, though. So yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Actually, that's what I wanted to ask you, Brent. Is there any plans to do that? Like, are you planning on doing that year round or is that just a winter project when you have time? Like, would you sit down with, people at the ranch if they happen to be if you happen to have a spare moment or how how, how does that look 100 percent. it's gonna go we're gonna go per uh person to person uh we'll do also live um uh, in season but uh just for the winter and the tough part is, is where i live right being up the quilshana you know the everybody's at least 200 kilometers away so it's working for now but the plan is absolutely mark uh to to run them uh person to person and run live via YouTube through the live platform they have there now too. So tell us a little bit about the weight creative company. So you're, you're doing, I understand you're doing videography, production, custom audio. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that project. Good. Thank, well, thanks for asking. Um, the big underlying work in a lot of the video stuff and, and I've, I've supplied audio to a bunch of different people that film as well is, is the copyright issues with audio. And uh, I experienced it about eight years ago um, because I think it was about seven or eight years ago when the music industry and YouTube were like, Kate, that's it. We're not going to um, have the relationships with people that are, that are borrowing other people's music, putting a video together and chucking it on, on YouTube. You're going to become um, slapped with ads all over it and it's just not going to be friendly. So I, I played in bands from age 17 to 25 and was in the studio a lot. So I was hands-on with making music. So I started making um, audio tracks with uh, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, and uh, the software that, you know, is available. So everything you hear or see that's been on um, um, any of the old Wait for It film stuff I've created and that's just to avoid the whole copyright mess that's out there. So the fun part is, is I now I'll create before I go on a shoot, I'll create the audio track. So in the back of my head while I'm filming, I know the kind of the underlying how the tracks are going to go. So you can right. film to that, you know, you can, you can run to that glide. 
Um, it's just, it just makes things easier. It kind of makes it all come together. Now I can, you know, produce pretty much any kind of background audio sound and audio is, is a big part of it. It can make or break a video because I've sure broken a few with just wrong music and silly music on it. But the ones that click in that have the right soundtrack or something special. So I like that I can produce and create that part of it totally copyright free. That was wait for audio, but I've just, what I've done is I've taken the artwork, the music, the videos, and merged into one called just The Wait. And just so I'm not having so many freaking logos flying around. Started looking yeah. like a Bassmaster's jacket there for a bit. <laughs> like, this is dirty. I got to clean this up. So um, I sense a painting. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I like it. <laughs> So it was just um, kind of bringing some of the brands together, but this stuff takes years. You know, this, you know, better than most it's to rebrand and just to move stuff and consolidate it takes years. It's, you can't just do it and, and think that everyone will understand. You got to keep plugging it. So, well, do you know what's funny too, is like, I just know from an audio podcast standpoint, like, okay, so I'll say something stupid or else, uh, or we'll just get off topic and we'll edit it out. But I literally listened to this podcast probably 10 times before I air it. And I, I edit the crap out of it, which like for me, I think that's missing in some of the stuff I hear. Cause if you got, and I, I've done it, I've been guilty of it. I got a couple of shows there where the mic wasn't working properly. I'm like, why did I even bother? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine with that video in there though. Like that's just a whole other element. Yeah. And it's three cameras. So the queuing up parts, I was going to originally, I started with four. And then when I put all the, the SD cards on the table and said, okay, I'm going to cut this up. I looked, I looked at the reflection of myself and my Mac and said, what are you thinking, dude? Why do you have four cameras running on a podcast? So it doesn't sound like a big deal, but I knocked it to three. Um, so there's a GoPro that gives the room point of view. I have a, a HDD pointed at properly focused at the iPad where the guest is talking. I have a Sony a6500 pointed at me that I kind of try to talk to when I'm talking to the the guest and then um, two room mics, one to capture the audio from the iPad separately and one to capture me separately. And then it all comes together and it's a mess. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of work that's why they're short yeah. dude if you if you look at the word shorty in there there's a reason it's just too much footage so yeah. you know unless you're just doing a camera a camera b yeah it's just it's a lot of footage to dump into your computer yeah all right man so hey uh looking forward to this coming season anything else we we haven't covered that uh maybe you want to jump into no, I, I re really appreciate uh, giving me a call and letting me go for round two. You know, I, I don't think I said anything on the first one that I regretted other than not using small enough chronomids. I might have edited, but, uh, I might have edited it out, eh? <laughs> no, I said it there. I said the big piece big piece of pizza thing. Oh, that, no, I, it's really, yeah. I really appreciate the call, and I really appreciate asking about all the stuff that goes on in the, the weight dungeon down here in the basement. Well, you're a wealth of information, and uh, hey, hopefully we'll see you at the show. Are you going to the show in uh, Linwood again? No, I'm just doing uh, just Tradex this year. We, okay, uh, that's yeah, good we're, we're experimenting with print, so uh, which is I'm super excited about because we've been away from print for a long time. So yep. we're going to spend some marketing dollars back into print. I just, you know, been away from it and it's neat to see print stuff again. So I want to be a contributor. 
Well, hey, man, never stop creating. Sure loving the stuff you're putting out. That's Brent Gill from the Weight Creative Company, host and producer of the Stale Fish Podcast. Check it out. Wait for it films and also some amazing airbrush and artwork. Thanks again, Brent. Have a great night. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you would like to hear on the show. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.